How many of you want a successful life? I mean, most of us would say, I want a successful life. We want success in our families. We want success for our kids. We want success in our marriage. We want that success. We want success in our work and in our schooling and the things that we do. I mean, this is kind of a ridiculous question. Of course, we want success. We want the power of God in our lives. We want we want the power of God where we can influence others for good, where we can make an impact for the kingdom of God. We want those things. Years ago, uh, Samantha and I, uh, we had five kids. That's a lot of kids. And so we started thinking, you know, we want to raise our kids successfully. We want our kids to grow up and love the Lord and be successful. And so we started seeking some wisdom. And there's a lot of wisdom as to how to raise kids. So we started reading all the books. There's a thousand books on parenting. We started listening to talks about people saying, here's how you raise kids. There's all sorts of wisdom out there. Some wisdom said, you know, if you're going to raise good kids, you need to homeschool your kids or private school your kids. Others said, no, you need to, to public school your kids. There was wisdom that said, you know, if you're going to have successful kids, you need to put them and prioritize education, or you need to prioritize athletics, or you need to prioritize the arts. You need to prioritize all these different things. Uh, some people in their wisdom said, if you're going to raise successful kids, you need to isolate the kids from the world. Others said, no, you need to create your kids to be little missionaries to go into the world and, and be a, a witness for the kingdom of God. And as we're seeking this wisdom, trying to figure out how do we raise our kids to, to be successful, I'll be honest, it was a little bit confusing because there's a lot of different wisdom out there. And so Samantha and I, we started doing this. Instead of going to all the experts, we started talking to Maybe some couples that were a few steps ahead of us. Their kids were older, their kids were gone, kids were out of the house. And so we started interviewing couples and saying, hey, what is something that you did with your kids that you are thankful for? What's one thing that you look back and you're like, this is a good thing, I'm so glad we did this, we would totally do this again. And we asked them the other question of, what is one thing that you look back and you regret doing with your kids? One thing that if you could do different, you would have gone back and say, I wouldn't have done this all this wisdom we saw, it was really good. And it created us to have um, a philosophy for how we're going to raise our kids. It helped us to understand that. But here's, here's what we essentially found is there were some parents that did everything just right. And their kids still went a direction they wouldn't be proud of. There's some parents that by all means seemed to do everything completely wrong and their kids turned out great. And it was this thing where, 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 yes, we want to have some wisdom. We want to have some intentionality with how we raise our kids. But ultimately, what that process led me to was it led me to have some humility where I had to take my kids and give them to the Lord and, and trust that God was going to do something in their hearts and lives. It wasn't based on how, what I do right or wrong as a parent. It was the power of God that was going to bring about successful kids. Similar, similarly, as a pastor, I want the power of God in our church. I want God's blessing on us as Restoration Church, as a body of Christ. And I remember in 2012, Restoration Church was just an idea. We were just a dream. That's all we were. In fact, we had two members of the church, me and Samantha. That's all there was. I had resigned my position at Madison House, so we were all in. It was time to go. And I remember I went to a pastor's gathering in Salem, Oregon. And I went to this pastor's gathering thinking, okay, here we are. We're going to plant this church. I'm going to look for some wisdom on, on what I can do to find the power of God in our church, to allow our church to be successful. 
So I'm at this pastor's gathering. We're sitting around this, this, this fire, and there's this new leader for this pastor's group who had just, been a, just become the leader of our group. And uh, people started saying, well, who are you? What is your qualifications for you to be the leader? And I remember hearing this leader very specifically. He had all these, he started going through and, and sharing all of his accomplishments. He said, well, you know, I pastored a, a large church. It was a very large church. We had multi-campus. We were essentially a mega church. We had a multi-million dollar budget. This guy was an incredible leader. He was an entrepreneurial leader. And so he could just create systems and draw people and keep them organized. And it was, it was incredible. This guy has a charismatic personality, kind of personality that you just want to be around because he just has that winsome personality. He shared how he's a sought-after speaker, how conferences of thousands of people would say, we want you to come because we want to learn from you. We want to hear you speak to us. This leader, as we're talking around the bonfire, he says, you know, there are these, uh, he starts throwing out some famous Christian leaders, some Christian leaders that many of us would be familiar with. And he said, I'm friends with these guys. In fact, there's one of these guys who's well known that one time I had to tell him, you need to be quiet. He said, I corrected him. Kind of in, look how great I am. Look what I did to this well-known Christian leader. He said, in fact, because I have all these well-known Christian leader friends, uh, they asked me to come and begin to coach and mentor their fellow pastors. So I decided to, to leave my church and become a, a, a church pastor's coach. And after I left that church, that church went through a season of struggle. Now I'll say this is a good man. This man loves the Lord. And from a worldly standard, this man was a success. But I remember sitting around the bonfire that day and I felt a little bit hopeless. Because I'm hearing him talking about all these things that bring success, all these things that bring power, and I'm looking and saying, you know what, I'm not a great speaker. I'm not a great leader like him. I don't have as uh, charismatic as a personality as him. And if the power of God is going to come from my strength and my abilities and my intellect, I remember thinking, what hope is there for Restoration Church? Around that same time, I got an email from uh, a mentor of mine, Jack. Jack had been in Yakima, then moved to North Korea to pastor an international church in North Korea. And I had emailed Jack and said, Jack, here's some exciting news. I'm leaving Madison House. I'm going to go plant this church at Restoration Church. I'm trying to figure out what it looks like. And I remember Jack sent me this email. And this is what Jack said. He said, the power of God has rested on you over the past seven years at Madison House, not because your popularity, not because your speaking ability, not because of your charismatic personality. He said, the power of God has rested on you because you preached the gospel. He said, listen, if you just keep preaching the gospel, you will see God do tremendous things at Restoration Church. We recently started a series looking at the book of 1 Corinthians, which is a letter from the Apostle Paul to a church much like ours, a church in the city of Corinth, a church that Paul had planted five years prior Paul had received uh, word that there were some issues in the church. There were some problems in the church. And so Paul writes this pastoral letter in response to those problems, trying to correct those problems, trying to point how this church could be a strong church and how they could experience the power of God in the church and in their lives. And today, Paul's going to answer that question that we all have. 
We want the power of God in our lives. We want to be successful in our life and in our church. How do we achieve that? How do we find the wisdom uh, to find the power of God and success in our church and in our lives? Is it from the wisdom of the world? Or does God work by some other wisdom? See, if we want the, the, the power and the blessing of God, Paul wants us to understand and he wants the people in Corinth to understand that Christ crucified is the wisdom and the power of God. We'll jump into this text. As Paul jumps in, we're looking at a lot of verses today, so bear with me. Paul is going to contrast the wisdom of the world with the wisdom of God. He's going to say these are two different types of wisdom. The wisdom of the world versus the wisdom of God. And so he's going to start out and give us a picture of what the wisdom of the world looks like. He says in, 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 in uh, chapter 1, verse 17, he says, Christ did not send me to, to baptize. He didn't send me into the world to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And he says, not with eloquent wisdom. See, this idea of eloquent wisdom is tied to this worldly wisdom. He's saying that, that, that the worldly wisdom is tied to our ability. It's tied to us having these abilities like eloquent speech. Eloquent speech. It's tied to our rhetoric. It's tied to our charismatic personality. Worldly wisdom is tied to our success and what we can accomplish. This is where, if you could picture, if you could picture a, a charismatic, handsome leader, probably very much like me, probably like, like me, if you could picture that, that handsome, charismatic leader, and if they can have some success in their life, well, obviously there's wisdom to that person. We're going to listen to that person because they've got wisdom, and that's why they have these successes. That's why they have these abilities. It's one example of worldly wisdom. A sec second example, uh, chapter 1, verse 19. Uh, Paul's actually going to quote from Isaiah chapter 29, and he says, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise. I'll set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. What he's referring to is, is the wisdom of this world is... is, is based on our common sense, is based on our human understanding. What we can comprehend, what we can imagine, what we can understand in our own mind frame. In fact, if you're one of those people like me who writes in your Bible, next to verse 19, you might write 2 Kings chapter 18, verses 19 through 22. In 2 Kings, the passage of Scripture that Paul is referencing here, that Isaiah referenced, uh, Israel had been attacked by Assyria. They'd been attacked by Syria, and now they're saying, we're being attacked, what do we do? And they turned to the wise people of their day and age. The wise people said, well, Egypt, they're kind of a national power. They're kind of like one of the, the world powers of that day. We should turn to Egypt and have Egypt be our, our, our partner. We'll have Egypt come and rescue us. They're going to be the one who's going to save us. And that is a wisdom based on our own understanding. That is a wisdom in what we can comprehend. And this worldly wisdom is based on man's understanding, man's performance, man's abilities, man's understanding, man's logic. That is where it is based. Seeking the power of God and the, and the blessing of God. We need to remember that Scripture says in Isaiah 55 that God's thoughts are not our thoughts. God's ways are higher than our ways. God is not limited by human logic. God transcends human logic, which is why verse 19 says God, uh, he literally says that God will destroy the wisdom of the wise. He will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. He confounds what we consider to be wise and wisdom. God is greater than that. He's greater than that. 
So if that's the wisdom of the world, what is the wisdom of God? Several verses here that he tells us. In verse 21, he says, In the wisdom of God, the world did not know, uh, know God through wisdom. It pleased God to reveal wisdom through what was preached. And what was preached? Verse 23, we preached Christ crucified. The wisdom of God is found in what was preached. And what was preached? Christ crucified. Verse 24 says, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. He says it again in verse 30, that, that Christ became the wisdom of God for us. You, know, you want to know what God's wisdom is? It's really simple. God's wisdom is Christ crucified. God wis, God's wisdom is the gospel. God's wisdom is the fact that, that the, love of, the, the love of Christ that he has for sinners like us. God's wisdom is found in the humility that Christ had, that he chose to leave heaven. He chose to become one of us. He considered us more significant than himself. He gave his life as a ransom. The wisdom of God is found in the cross of Christ, in the gospel message. So on this side, you've got this worldly wisdom that is based on our understanding. It's based on us. It's about me, me, me. On the other side, you've got the, the, the wisdom of God, which is all about Christ and what he's accomplished for us. And these two wisdoms, these two wisdoms are kind of incompatible. They don't quite go together. That's why verse 18 that's why Paul writes and he says, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Who are those who are perishing? Those who are perishing are those who have turned to the wisdom of the world to solve their issues. These are the people like the Jews. The Jews were people who, who knew about God. They knew information about God, but they did not know and have a personal relationship with God. The perishing were people like the Greeks who trusted in their philosophical and intellectual insight. That was enough for them just to have enough knowledge. That was all they needed. The perishing are people like you and I who oftentimes we turn to ourselves. We turn to our good works. We turn to our wealth. We turn to our morality and think, well, that's enough. That makes me good enough because I have knowledge, because I'm a good person, because I have good morals. Paul goes to Corinth and doesn't preach a wisdom of the world, doesn't preach with eloquent wisdom. He preaches the simple message of the cross. He preaches Jesus, born to a teenage poor mom in lowly Nazareth. What good can come from Nazareth? He preaches Jesus who claimed to be God in the flesh. He preaches Jesus who was rejected by the religious leaders of his day. He preaches Jesus who was arrested and tried and convicted by the Romans. He preaches Jesus who was crucified on a cross, which is the most shameful type of death that he could have experienced. He preaches Jesus, a man who was raised from the dead and is now sitting at the right hand of God. He preaches Jesus as a man who's now sitting at the right hand of God and he's summoning us as his people to be faithful in our obedience to him the world, to the wisdom of the world, <clears throat> the world that builds our life around success and intellect and our abilities, the story of Jesus might be the craziest, outrageous story they could ever imagine. I'm supposed to give my life to that? It doesn't make sense. Paul says it is folly. 
Paul is saying it's moronic. Paul is saying those who believe it, consider, from a worldly perspective, they consider it moronic that we believe this truth. In fact, many people cannot grasp the, the wisdom of God. They can't grasp the cross of Christ because they're stuck with the wisdom of the world. That's what he says in verse 22. He said the Jews, they're looking for a sign. The Jews, they wanted God to meet all their criteria providing irrefutable and tangible proof to base their belief upon. They wanted everything to be settled in their hearts and in their mind. They wanted evidence. Again, they're looking for a Messiah. Everybody's looking for a Messiah. They were looking for a Messiah who was full of majesty, of worldly power. They were looking for that charismatic leader who was going to come in and conquer their oppressors. Their Messiah ought to be defeating the Romans, not being crucified by them. The Jews, they're looking for a Messiah in a worldly wisdom. It says in verse 22, the Greeks in Corinth, they were seeking wisdom. The Greeks, they're the enlightened people, right? The Greeks gave us Socrates and Aristotle and Plato and, and Greek mythology. The Greeks used uh, uh, speculation and reasoning and argument to understand God. They could not grasp this idea of a God who came to make himself known. To a Greek intellectual, a God who suffers, a God who suffers is a contradiction of terms. You can't have a God who suffers. God is supposed to be above all. A God who reconciles himself to the world would have been incomprehensible to a Greek. It would have been ridiculous. They couldn't understand it in their own understanding with their own wisdom. And this is where the wisdom of God and the cross of Christ, these things are so radically different. That oftentimes, the people of the world, we look and we, we have a hard time grasping the cross of Christ because it almost seems too simple. It almost seems too foolish. But as you see Paul contrasting the wisdom of the world with the wisdom of God, look at where the power of God resides. Look what he says in verse 18. He says, to us, the cross of Christ, the wisdom of God, is the power of God. He says in verse 24, Christ is the power of God. See, if we are in our situation, we're saying we want God's power in our life. I want God's power in my life. I want power over sin and Satan. I want God's presence. I want God's blessing. It's not found in our human uh, wisdom. It's not found in our abilities and our understanding. It's found in the gospel of Christ. It's found in the cross of Christ. That's where the power of God resides. And the question that Paul had in that day and age for the church at Corinth, for the Jews and the Greeks, the, the, the question that Paul has for you and I today at Restoration Church, will we continue to perish as we demand signs, as we seek to understand everything with our own limited understanding? Or will we instead admit we need a Savior? Will we humble ourselves and embrace and build our lives around the cross of Christ, the wisdom of God. Verse, 36, verse 26, 1 Corinthians 1, 26, Paul's going to take this even a step further and say, look, these are the people, these are the people who embody the wisdom and the power of God. Again, in the world, we look at the worldly wisdom, the worldly wisdom how we think the people that God would use, we think the people that God would bless, well, of course, those are the popular people. 
Of course, those are the, the wealthy, the people with the charismatic personalities. Those are the people who are successful from the world's terms. But the wisdom of God flips that upside down. Look what he says, verse, uh, uh, verse 26. He says, look at the church at Corinth. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. He says, not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. God chose what is foolish in the eyes of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak in the, the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world to bring nothing to the things that are. Paul's saying this is where the power of God resides. God uses the weak, the foolish, the low, and the despised. That's the people who find the wisdom of God. And why is that? Why does God choose to, to work through the humble, the broken? This is the key to God's wisdom and God's power. Verse 29, he says, so that no human can boast in the presence of God. See, the wisdom of the world, the wisdom of the world, we, we boast in our pride. We boast in our accomplishments. I think about my friend in Salem. He's saying, look how great I am. Look at all that I've accomplished for God. God is so lucky to have me on his team. Man, I built this big church. I mentor these pastors. These pastors call me for advice. Look how great I am. Man, God is so lucky that I'm on his team. The wisdom of God recognizes that we are nothing without Christ. The wisdom of God is where we don't boast in our success. We don't boast in ourselves. We boast in God alone. 